Before we do anything, even before we intro this series, we need to talk about biblical interpretation. So far in postmodern liturgy, we've talked a lot about biblical interpretation. I even wrote a piece that has clearly caught some people's interest called The Bible Doesn't Say Anything. I think I have a good metaphor for biblical interpretation that seems especially fitting as we start this series by dealing with the creation narrative. So, I've isolated a transcript of some text. Now, ideally you would read this, but since this is a podcast, to simulate the reading experience, I'm going to have a computer read you the text to try and take out most of the interpretive cues that come from someone reading. Our task is to arrive at the overall point of this text. So, take a listen to this and see if you know the overall point. If you want the full experience, you could pause this episode and read the transcript in the show notes. Here it is. One down in the ninth. Here's Jose Ramirez 0 for 3. He'll bat left-handed. Osun is not wasting any time. The pitch swung on hit high and deep to right. Sonner's track wall leaps it's gone. How about that? What more can Jose Ramirez do? We are tied at two. A swing and a drive to deep right. Saunders at the wall. It hits off the top of the wall. McKean's around second. He's on his way to third. He'll try to score. Here's the throw. Not in time. Usain McKean flying around the bases. On a drive off the top of the wall and right. It ricocheted back toward the infield and Coach Mike Sarbon never slowed him down. I know, monotone is horrible. But, did you get the overall point? I would actually be surprised if many did, because you probably are just short of having enough information to do so. However, you probably notice words like hit, tie, swing, bases, second, third. So most of you know we're talking about baseball. So now... I will play you an audio clip to give some more interpretive clues. Generally speaking, this clip should give enough information to arrive at the overall point. One down in the ninth. Here's Jose Ramirez. 0 for 3. He'll bat left-handed. Osuna's not wasting any time. The pitch swung on. Hit high and deep to right. Saunders track. Wall leaps and scores! How about that? What? Jose Ramirez do. We are tied at two. A swing and a drive to deep right. Saunders at the wall. It hits off the top of the wall. Maitland's around second. He's on his way to third. He'll try to score. Here's the throw. Out in time. So, what's the point? The Cleveland Indians win the baseball game. That's the point. This is actually the transcript and audio used without the express written permission of Major League Baseball of the Cleveland Indians versus the Toronto Blue Jays on August 20th, 2016. 
The voice you heard was Tom Hamilton, the radio announcer for the Indians. The best announcer in baseball. Now, I'd like you to imagine someone stumbling on this recording 3,000 years from now. And maybe something like 1,000 years from now, baseball actually stopped being a profession. Maybe it's still being played for fun in neighborhoods, but generally it isn't all that prominent. Needless to say, someone would have a lot of work to do to understand what this recording is about. Maybe for some of you, you found the point by reading the text or hearing the computer read the text. Maybe the audio helped some, and maybe some of you never got there. Well, let's dissect it a bit. Certain details don't help, like he'll bat left-handed. Certain details could actually be distracting. The announcer actually says, Usain Naquin flying around the bases. In 10 years, or maybe even today, if I showed someone the text and asked who was the hero for the Cleveland Indians, they would probably say Usain Naquin without knowing that Tyler Naquin hit a walk-off inside the park home run the night after Usain Bolt was winning gold in the 200-meter dash. Contextually, that phrase was perfectly alliterative. But soon after, it could actually throw investigators far off track. Finally, if you catch all the contextual clues, you can dissect the text and focus on the details which help you understand the point. It's the ninth inning. Jose Ramirez, who plays for Cleveland, ties the game at two. The next batter, Tyler Naquin, scores, and the final piece to the puzzle comes in the audio. The crowd cheering and the sound of fireworks means Cleveland is playing at home, which means it's the bottom half of the ninth inning, which means taking the lead means they win. But here's my point. Most texts are a bit more nuanced than Tom Hamilton said it, I believe it, That settles it. So when talking about something as foundational as the opening of the Christian scriptures, it seems fair to say we've got some work to do. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. We are starting a five-week series on postmodern liturgy which deals with the topic of creation care. I don't mind admitting that one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this topic is that creation care was one of my main focuses in seminary, so I've dug into it more than a lot of other topics. But it's more than that. I love doubt and deconstruction. It has been so formative for me that I think it should be formalized practice within the church, which is pretty much the point of postmodern liturgy. At the same time, the regular practice of doubt and deconstruction can leave one feeling like they're floating in the ether of nothingness with nothing to rest on confidently. In my case, and I suspect in the case of many others, my deconstruction of an overemphasis of salvation theology left me floating. It seemed like salvation was only a small part of a story, but it was all anyone ever talked about. So, as I floated, I wondered if there was ever going to be anything to stand on to at least temporarily relieve my existential nausea. Eventually, with the help of many others, I discovered that not only is creation theology the most foundational theology, it is actually 
the dominant theology in Scripture. So, this series is about two main things. Number one, getting some idea of why I think that is the case. And number two, understanding what implications this realization has for the Christian life. To begin, let's re-examine the creation narrative. There's only one reading this week. Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 4. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that God had done. And God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created.
So, now we can take the strategy from the baseball intro and apply it to the creation narrative. I hope that metaphor was enough to show why we need a strategy at all. Many might say, just read the thing and do what it says. It's obviously not that simple. Details in scripture can be true, at least in some sense, and also be beautifully stated. But not all details need to be given equal weight. The search for the overall point, or better said, the dominant themes, can be tedious, but it's quite important. I'd like to suggest three main themes that arise in this passage. And because of their placement in the overall narrative of Scripture, at the beginning, I'd also like to suggest that they're dominant themes throughout the whole Bible, and therefore are dominant themes in the lives of people of faith. But before I do that, I want to talk about the original audience of this story. It is sort of a Tyler Naquin versus Usain Naquin equivalent in the creation narrative. As I've mentioned before, most scholarship suggests that much of the Old Testament was written while Israel was in Babylonian captivity. This is not to say these stories weren't told before then, but I guess in my words, I would say much of the writing and editing of the Old Testament took place well after the events they're describing. We should take that gap into account, but we should also take that specific context, Babylonian captivity, into account. Basically, all people groups at the time had creation narratives. The Babylonian version is called the Enuma Elish. But now, all of a sudden, we have the problem of competing creation narratives. Well, why even bring this up? Because in my estimation, most of the popular conversation over the creation narrative, as far back as I can remember, has been about whether this story is literal. I just want to say, that's the wrong conversation. In my opinion, it very much distracts from a fruitful conversation that could be had. You know, I want so badly just to make it easy and say, no, this story isn't literally true. I mean, Genesis 1 says people weren't even around until day 6, so how in the world would anyone know what happened on days 1 through 5? But I actually can't say no because to me it seems completely ridiculous to be certain either way. Plus, it's not the right conversation. And I'm not going to have it just because some guy in Kentucky built a giant boat and won't stop publicly debating people about whether it is literally true. I just want to say two things on this topic. The purpose of this narrative isn't to be scientific or historical. And in that way, it doesn't conflict with science or history. This story is about rhythm and character. But here's why I bring this up despite not being interested in the conversation. When this is the debate, people are forced to choose sides, and both sides miss out on the true beauty of this narrative. So let me share these three dominant themes in the creation narrative. Number one, chaos to order. I mentioned the Babylonian narrative and then quickly moved on. Here's where it comes back, and while I don't have time to tell that whole story, it's probably helpful to have some idea of what's it, what it's about. I'm going to miss a ton of details which have rich symbolism, but essentially, the Enuma Elish describes a cosmic battle between several gods, 
During this battle, the Earth is created, but it's basically made up of war waste. And in the end, Marduk, the god who won the war, creates humans out of the remains of the gods that Marduk defeated. And the humans are servants with the task of keeping order from moving back into chaos. But the Hebrew narrative is different. One could almost say completely opposite. It is God who takes the formless void and slowly begins to order the chaos. This concept is basically sanctification. God continues to carve out the chaos and bring it to order, giving each thing purpose. I actually think it's critical to compare these narratives because it's a fundamental question of whether everything is something like nuclear waste that humans on their own have the responsibility to keep from erupting back into chaos, or if it is God whose character is to order chaos and give it purpose. You can see this process in the first couple verses. This story isn't describing some sort of Bob Ross God who says, poof, let's put a little bush right over there. Darkness and light are separated, and both have purpose, and both are good. This theme that is established in the first chapter of the Bible continues over and over again. God orders chaos. But as it's ordered, it doesn't teeter on the edge of falling back into chaos. It is purposed, and it is judged as good. If we don't know about the existence of the Enuma Leash, we wouldn't have the opportunity to see this important part of God's character. The authors of the creation narrative, who were a people in captivity, stood up against the dominant creation story in their culture and said, God is not one who creates out of the blood of war and leaves the people on their own to do battle with impending doom. God makes good and purposed things out of chaos. Number two, rhythm and Sabbath. There's a profound sense of rhythm in the work of creation. It's not only described by the words of the story, it is the words of the story themselves. Once again, God doesn't just poof every tree into existence. A system is established. Sometimes the plants are seeds. Sometimes the plants are producing seeds. Sometimes there's no plant, just the seed. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The answer is, I told you I'm not going to have the literalism conversation. Sometimes there are chickens, sometimes there are eggs. This story is actually more about the creation of the circle than it is about each individual piece itself. Life has rhythms that cannot be rushed or ignored. But also, the words of the story have a rhythm themselves. It is a poem, after all. Each day, God says, let something be. It is. God sees it is good. And there was evening, and there was morning, each day. In chapter 2, the story isn't finished. But this extremely predictable rhythm halts. It's as if the author screams, pay attention! This is important, doubly important because it is the end of the story and because the rhythm of the story has stopped. And here, Sabbath, 
or rest is described. Apparently, this concept is highlighted and italicized and underlined all at the same time. Sabbath and rest. Now, I've been really trying to use this week to set the table for this five-week series. So, I actually have tried to avoid reading any creation care practices onto this intro. Because we'll spend the rest of the series talking about them. But it's worth asking. Does your life have times where the rhythm you have established comes to a halt? And do you allow the opportunity for all of creation that exists around you to have rest and Sabbath? Because in this thesis statement for the Bible, this part seems to stand out. We'll talk about it more in episode three of this series. Finally, point number three, wonder. There's a theme that is invoked whenever creation themes are mentioned in the Bible. And it's also true of this creation narrative. It's something like, where were you when I created blank? That exact idea happens several times in the book of Job. It's also why it bothers me so badly when people passionately claim to understand exactly how this scientifically explains the origins of everything. This story should stir a sense of humility and not hubris. It's not the story of humanity. It's not our origin story. It reminds us that somehow God brought order from chaos. It should create a sense of mystery. It should make us wonder at the unexplainable. We don't own this story. It isn't our story. At best, we are four verses out of 35. And that is the foundation of creation theology and of creation care. This is not ours to own, or ours to intimidate with, or even ours to defend. We stand in awe of it, and we stand in awe at the wonder of creation everywhere around us. Where were you when the world was brought into being? That's it for this week's episode, but it's only the beginning of this five-week series on creation care. Next week, we will see how scripture suggests that the state of creation reveals the state of the collective human heart. I'd love if you would join us online at postmodernliturgy.com. There's always other stuff to interact with there, but during this series specifically, there will be plenty of supplemental resources there. You can also connect with us on social media. We're at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. We'd love if you would consider supporting our work. 
You can do that for free by sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast in your particular app. Or you can do that financially by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can see several great benefits for our supporters on different levels there. And if you've heard me say this several times up to this point, you should check again because I just changed some of the tiers and added some more benefits. None of you owe anything for this podcast, but if you appreciate this beginning seed of an idea, your financial support could make this work a lot more sustainable and allow it to grow and happen more often. You'll be in great company with several wonderful supporters we already have. Check out our Patreon site at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy to see all the options and become a supporter. Thanks for joining me. I'm really excited about this series. And as always, enjoy the tension.